Well, good morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please open with me to, to John chapter 4. As you're turning there, there's a, a very famous piece of classical music that you have probably heard at some point in your life. Uh, it is commonly uh, used uh, to accompany fireworks on Independence Day, and uh, even though you may not be familiar with the title of it, you would probably immediately recognize uh, the music itself if you were to hear it. Uh, the, the piece was written by Russian composer uh, Pyotr Ilyich uh, Tchaikovsky, and it's commonly known as the 1812 Overture. Now, Tchaikovsky wrote the piece in 1880 uh, in order to commemorate uh, Russia's successful defense against Napoleon's invasion back in 1812. Uh, and the overture, uh, if you've ever listened to it, is 15 minutes long. Uh, and it starts slowly uh, and it gradually builds to this epic finale that includes uh, the, the clanging in of chimes and cymbals and this really intense brass fanfare and it's it even includes the firing of a volley of cannons uh it's just this immense uh finale and it builds and builds Uh, and this morning as we we come to uh, john chapter 4 and we're going to be looking at verses 39 to 42 uh, those verses are the finale of what we have been looking at in past weeks Uh, this is the 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 climactic uh, end to this conversation this scene uh, that began uh, with jesus and his disciples going to this small town of sychar uh, in the region of samaria it's been a a slow build and it's going to uh, come to a climax here in these verses and uh, what i'd like to do today is to get a little bit of a running start is read uh, verses 27 through 30 in john chapter 4 and then we will jump down to verses 39 through 42 read along with me just then his disciples came back they marveled that he was talking with a woman but no one said what do you seek or why are you talking with her So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. And verse 39, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, They asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Now, and in these uh, verses that we're going to look at this morning, we're going to see the, the Apostle John recording for us the response of the Samaritans, both to the testimony of the woman and uh, to the word of Jesus as he spends time with them. Uh, and as we're going to see uh, that these Samaritans, they progress in their faith over the, the, the couple of days that they spend with Jesus. Uh, and this progression of faith is going to show us uh, really what it looks like to follow Jesus, what it means to be one of his disciples, because as they progress in their faith, uh, they're going to show what it looks like uh, to be a disciple of 
Christ. And these distinguishing marks, as we're going to see them, uh, they're going to be the same in the first century as they're going to be today and every time in between. Uh, These distinguishing marks should be true of anybody who's going to be following Jesus, regardless of their age, if they're a a teenager or they're 75. uh, They're going to be the same whether they they live in India or they live in America, and they're going to be uh, the same throughout all of the the time span from uh, the first century to the 21st century. These are the distinguishing marks of what it means and what it looks like to be a disciple, a follower of Christ. And before we look at what these marks are, I just want to ask a simple question. Is, is why are they important? Because you may be sitting there saying, okay, well, this is going to, be, going to be great. I'm not sure how this applies to me. Uh, and I would say this. There will come a point in time, if not already presently, where you have to, number one, evaluate your own faith. We always need to do that. And then secondly, you are going to, at some point or another, need to evaluate somebody else's faith someone else's profession of faith in Christ. And what would those occasions be where you would need to make an evaluation of somebody else's faith? Well, uh, if you are a Christian parent, you are called to do what? To teach, to shepherd, to instruct your children according to Scripture. Uh, and eventually you have this question that you, that you ask yourself of, as your, of your children as they grow up. You ask if they have professed faith in Christ... What do you you begin to ask inwardly of yourself? Is that profession of faith genuine? Is their faith truly uh, saving faith? Uh, And uh, I have encountered so many parents who who have failed in doing this, have failed of really looking to evaluate rightly whether or not their children uh, are following Christ or if they've just made a profession. They've just prayed a prayer. So every Christian parent will one day have to do this. Uh, What about young Christian singles? Uh, As you look for a spouse, what are you going to need to do? You're going to need to evaluate that person's faith uh, to see if they are truly following Christ or just somebody who attends church. Because not everybody who attends church is really following Jesus. So every young Christian single is going to carefully need to evaluate somebody else's faith and commitment to Christ as they look for and pursue a spouse. Additionally, those who are counselors, uh, we're going to have a a big biblical counseling ministry. One of the the primary tasks is to evaluate someone's profession. Anybody who is involved in discipleship, if you you work in children's ministry or you work with our youth here uh, in the church, you are going to need to evaluate a student's faith, a student's profession of Christ. And as church members... What are we all called to do? Somebody applies for membership. What are we called to then observe and evaluate regarding them? Their profession of faith. Uh, the same thing takes place uh, even before church membership, but with baptism. Now, does this person know and understand the gospel and have they placed their faith and trust in Christ? And then as, uh, as Christians, you all are called to evaluate me. And really, you're called to evaluate anybody who would stand up and proclaim God's word to you. You see, when Paul came to the town of Berea and began to teach them, what did the Bereans do? They said, okay, Paul, what were you, what was that you said? And let me go look that in the Old Testament and let me evaluate this teacher according to God's word. And you all have that responsibility, not just to evaluate what I teach to weigh my doctrine, but also to evaluate my life. 
to evaluate whether or not I am following Christ. Uh, and if I, uh, if I am following Christ, then y- you can hear what I am saying. But if I'm not following Christ, you can discount everything else. If you turn from John 4 back to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 7, uh, which we read last month, uh, in the month of September, as we, or I guess it's still September now, we read this month, uh, and we read Matthew's Gospel together as a church. Uh, Matthew 7 is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus concludes his sermon by calling for his disciples and everyone who is listening to him at that time and us today. He's calling us to be evaluators of others, to evaluate ourselves and to look at the fruit of other people's lives. If you look with me at Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 13, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So there, what are we called to know and to evaluate? But we need to know what the narrow gate looks like and what the narrow path of following Christ looks like. That, that is, what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? We're called to evaluate that for ourselves and to know uh, whether or not we are on that. In verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. We are called to be fruit inspectors as Christians, uh, to evaluate someone's life and doctrine, especially teachers. Then verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Additionally, we see we are to evaluate ourselves. These are some of the most sobering words of Christ right here. That not everybody who says to him, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So we really do need to know and understand what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. And then Jesus concludes his sermon. Verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. We have to evaluate ourselves to really see what am I building my life upon? Is it upon the words of Christ or upon anything else? 
So we have to be evaluators. We have to know what it really looks like to follow and pursue Christ. That's why these marks of discipleship are so important. Because at some point or another, we will have to apply them and evaluate ourselves and others. But going back to John 4, what are the marks of discipleship that we see here in verses 39 to 42? And this is not going to be an exhaustive list of what it looks like to be a disciple, but this is the most basic list. Now, this is the the fundamentals of what it genuinely means to possess saving faith, to be a disciple of Christ. And what we're going to see this morning are three distinguishing marks of a true disciple that will be evident if we are progressing in our faith. Three distinguishing marks. And mark number one is going to be found in verse 39. And it is that a disciple receives the message about Jesus in faith. A disciple receives the message about Jesus in faith. Look with me at verse 39. It says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Now, I could have included evangelism. And the proclamation of the gospel as another mark that distinguishes those who are following Christ. Uh, That is something that we are all called to do. If we are a disciple, we are called to be a proclaimer of who he is and what he has done. But the emphasis here in these verses is not so much on what the woman did, but upon what took place in the Samaritans. Uh, And what we see here in the beginning, the Samaritans received the woman's testimony about Jesus in faith. Many believed because of her testimony. And it was a very simple testimony. He told me all that I ever did. And that's uh, pretty amazing, isn't it? That's a very simple proclamation. Uh, She just comes and, and speaks about her own encounter with Jesus. But again, think about what the Samaritans have not yet had. They themselves have not yet had a personal interaction with Christ, but they, faith has begun within them because of this woman's testimony. She's had an interaction with him, and now they have believed based upon what she has said about her interaction with him. Uh, and so they have a, a limited understanding. They have a, a second-hand faith as it was. They haven't interacted with him at all, but they believe because of her word. And it's a very limited understanding of who Jesus is. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. And if you are a believer, if you just think back to when you first came to know and trust in Christ for your salvation, how much did you know about Jesus at that point in time? If you think back, you probably knew very, very little. I know looking back at my own salvation, I understood that Jesus was the Son of God. I understood that he died on the cross. I understood my own sinfulness, that he died on the cross to pay for my sin, and that by believing in him, I could be forgiven. Now, that was kind of the essence of my understanding of the gospel at the time of my uh, salvation. And that's all it takes. There's only a childlike faith that is required to believe in Jesus. We receive the message about him in faith. We didn't know all of these other extensive uh, biblical truths or theology. Uh, I I doubt any of us really had an understanding of the Trinity uh, or of Jesus' full deity and full humanity or justification and sanctification or uh, had a position on the millennial kingdom uh, when, when we first heard the gospel. All of that comes later as we progress in our faith. But 
This simple reception of the gospel is where faith begins. It's where discipleship begins. In Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 10, he speaks of this, this childlike faith that is a requirement for salvation. So they were bringing children to him, speaking of Jesus, that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And so we, we, we begin with this childlike faith. And faith usually begins based upon the testimony of someone else, the testimony of someone who shared the gospel with us. And also, I would, I would say this is where the majority of church kids live. Right? They, they, they receive the gospel, they hear the gospel, make a profession of faith because of the testimony of who? Of their parents. Right? Uh, they, they receive the message about Jesus in faith because they trust the one who is proclaiming the message to them. They don't have all of the answers, but they have a simple faith. And again, this is where faith begins. And while there are maybe some among us who were saved merely by reading the scriptures, you were reading God's word. And as you're reading it, you, you begin to understand all that it teaches and you become convicted and you look to Jesus in faith. But for the most part, we receive the gospel with a very childlike faith because of somebody else speaking that message to us. And that's the very first and most basic mark of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. There's, there is nobody who is a disciple who has not yet received the message of, about Jesus in faith. This, this is the, the first and the beginning point uh, of uh, our discipleship according to Christ. But as we're going to see, there is also a lot more to being a disciple than just that first reception of the message about Jesus. Uh, as we look at the, the second mark of uh, what it means to follow Jesus, what, the second mark of Discipleship is found in verse 40. It's that a disciple then desires to remain with Jesus. Look at me at that verse. It says, so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And after receiving this testimony from the Samaritan woman, uh, the, the villagers of Sychar came to Jesus. As we talked about last week, they walk out to Jesus. Some of them already, uh, faith is beginning and they're, they're believing in Christ. And they come to Jesus and what do they say? Hey, won't you stay with us? Would you come and remain with us? And, and it says that Jesus stayed with them for two more days. And the reason that Samaritans asked that is because they wanted to know more. Again, they hadn't had a personal interaction yet with Christ. They, they had believed based upon the woman's testimony, but now they're like, hey, I want to hear more about who Jesus is. They had a desire to, to know him and to remain with him, to learn from him. And this concept of remaining or abiding with Jesus is a very key concept of discipleship in John's gospel. It is going to be a recurring theme. Uh, we saw earlier in John's gospel, if you uh, backtrack a little bit to John chapter 1, uh, when the first disciples are called, when, the, when they first come to faith in Christ, if you look at chapter 1, verse 39, 
he said to them, so he, Jesus, said to them, speaking of uh, Andrew, uh, and then the author of this gospel, John, he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. And that word for stayed is the same word here uh, in the Greek that the Samaritans come and asked Jesus, hey, come remain with us, come stay with us. It's also translated later on in John's Gospel uh, with the word abide. This idea of remaining, of abiding with Jesus. Uh, John chapter 5, verse 38, uh, in condemning the Jewish leaders, he says, And you do not have this uh, or his word, God's word, abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. And in John chapter 6, verse 56, Jesus speaking to his disciples, he says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides or remains in me and I in him. And John 8:31 so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him if you abide in my word you are truly my disciples. And then if you if you turn with me over to the next passage in John chapter 15 this is the the most famous and and the longest of these passages speaking about what it means to abide in Christ. John chapter 15 beginning in verse 4 Jesus says to his disciples, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that you may, that you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So it was a word that was repeated several times in that passage, right? Again, this idea of Jesus on the, the last night before he is uh, to be taken away from his disciples and tried uh, and then crucified. Is one of his last words, his last messages to those disciples is what does he want them to do? Even though he's leaving, what are they called to do? They are called to abide, to remain in him, to remain with him. And if the first mark of receiving the message about Jesus in faith, if that's the, the first distinguishing mark of a disciple, the necessity of childlike faith, then the second distinguishing mark is this desire to be with Jesus. You could, you could call it a childlike affection for Christ. That is what we are called to have, and that is what we, we, what we will have if we are truly a disciple of Christ. We will want to be where He is. 
My my two and a half year old son has started saying this new thing as we're uh, we're in our house and uh, we'll be uh, in a particular room. Uh, and if I have to, to run to another room to go and get something, maybe that we're in the kitchen, I have to go to the garage or I have to run up uh, to our bedroom or some other place. If I have to leave him, even for a split second, uh, he, he says, wait, Dada, can I go with you? Right? And, and even as I try to explain, I'm, I'm going to be right back. It's going to take me two seconds. It'll take uh, a whole lot longer if you come with me. And we trudge up the stairs really slowly. And I'm just going to sprint and be right back. And, and if I try and explain all that to him, guess what he still says? But, but, but can I come with you? That, that desire on his part is to be with me wherever I go. And that is what we are to have as a disciple of Christ. That wherever he goes, we have a desire to be with him, to remain with him. We long just to be near to him. Another example of this that we we see in Scripture is found in Mark chapter 5, where where Jesus heals this demon-possessed man. And then Jesus is getting ready to depart from that region. Uh, And in Mark chapter 5, beginning verse 18, uh, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him, that he might be with him. So this man who was just saved, who was just relieved of this demonic possession that had been controlling his life for years and years, what is his one request to Jesus? Jesus, can I just be with you? Can I just go with you wherever you are going? But Jesus says to him, or, and, he, and Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. But again, if we are truly a disciple of Christ, if we are truly following him, what will our desire be? It will be to remain with, to abide in Christ. But as I say that, and as we're looking at these accounts in the Gospels, we say, well, it's easy to say that these people who lived during the time and the life of Jesus, that they could remain with him. But how do I remain with him when he's not here? Right? He's not here physically on the earth now. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So how is it that we can abide in or remain with Jesus right now when he's not here physically with us? What does it mean to abide in him? And I would offer these five things of what it looks like to remain in Jesus. That if we have this desire to remain with him, first and foremost, we will have a longing to know him. A longing to know him. And not just facts about him. Right? Uh, As a... if you're married, as you were trying to, to get to know uh, your, your spouse, uh, were you just doing that like you're studying for a test? Okay, so let me, now what was your birthday? Okay, and then uh, your, your, uh, this and this, how many siblings do you have? Okay, you're not just uh, trying to accumulate facts about a person. You want to know them personally and intimately, right? And if we are remaining in Jesus, if we are one of his disciples truly following him, we will have a desire not just to accumulate knowledge about Jesus, but to know him personally and intimately. But again, how do we do that when he's not here? We do that by going to his word. So first, we should have this desire to remain with him. 
And then secondly, we will have a love for his word. Because that is how we come to know him at this point in time when he's not here with us. A little bit later in John's gospel, and again in the same conversation that we were looking at in John 15. If you look, it be John 14, verse 21. It says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So if we want to remain with Jesus, and if we, if we have a love and affection for him, we will also do what? We will obey his word. Uh, and we will know his word and strive to obey it. We will demonstrate our love and affection for Him in that way. We will have a a longing to know Him. We will have a love for His Word. Third, that you will find joy and satisfaction in obeying Christ. Uh, And we saw that last week uh, as we looked at uh, that conversation between Jesus and his disciples as as the Samaritan woman has gone into the town and the Samaritans are coming out to to speak to Jesus and speak the words that we are looking at this week. And the disciples are saying, hey, Jesus, take take and eat. You haven't eaten yet. We went into the town to get you food. And then Jesus says, well, I have food. I have bread that you don't know about. And the disciples are like... I didn't bring him food. Did anybody else bring him food? What is he talking about? And Jesus says, no, my bread, my satisfaction, my sustaining comes from doing the will of God. Again, Jesus found his joy, his satisfaction, his sustainment in obeying God. And if we are one of Jesus' disciples, we are going to find our joy, our satisfaction, and our sustaining in that same way by obeying him. Fourth, if, if we are also having a desire to remain with Christ, this will also be true, that we will have a love for God's people. We'll have a love for God's people. Again, going back to that, that singular conversation uh, later on in John's gospel with his disciples, John chapter 13. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. If we really are serious about remaining in Christ, we will demonstrate a love and an affection for his people. Have you guys ever talked to somebody that... That says they had just a personal faith in Jesus and it's just a personal relationship. They don't like to go to church because they don't like organized religion, but they're, they're good with Jesus. Uh, and again, of, wh- wh- how do we evaluate that? Can, can you love Jesus but hate his bride? Can you love Christ but hate his people? And that's really what that person is saying. And no, if you are truly a disciple, if you are truly a follower of Jesus, you will have a love and an affection for Christ's people because they are co-heirs with you. They are children of God along with you. That's one of the, the defining characteristics of what it will look like to remain in Christ. And then, finally, you say that if you are remaining in Christ, you will have a desire to live for Him rather than for yourself. You'll have a desire to live for him rather than for yourself. I love the, the Apostle Paul's confession in Philippians 
chapter 3, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The Apostle Paul said, hey, I want to remain in Christ. And because I'm so convinced of who Jesus is and the surpassing value of pursuing and knowing him, I'm willing to to cast everything else aside and view it as as rubbish, as trash, as dung. Is what he is saying there. That everything else pales in comparison to Christ. And if we have that desire to remain in Christ, we will also have that desire to live for him rather than ourselves. And that's a simple mark that we are looking at here, the desire to remain with and to abide in Jesus. And and whether or not this is true is going to say so much about really where we are spiritually. And as as a pastor who's worked extensively with children and and youth, I've had so many parents come up to me and say, you know, I've prayed with my child, but how do I know if, if their profession of faith is genuine? Uh, and and usually what I, my, my go-to response is, does your child love Jesus? Does your child love Jesus? That's different than asking, does your child tolerate coming with you to church? Right? There's, there's a difference there. Uh, it's different than asking, well, well does your child obey you? Right? That's not the, the point. The, the, really getting to the heart of whether or not someone's profession of faith is true is do you have an affection, a love for Christ? A love that leads you to want to be with him wherever he goes or whatever he might call you to. And answering that question, of, hey, does this person, does my child have a love for Jesus? That's really going to get to the heart of where they are spiritually. There's a a really shocking verse at the end of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22. The Apostle Paul says this, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. He says, Our Lord, come. But, th- but think about what, what Paul is saying there. If anyone does not love Christ, let him be a curse. And like, Paul, that's a, that's a really strong statement. Right? Th- those are strong words. And uh, elsewhere in, in Paul's letters, Paul kind of uses that same formula in Galatians chapter 1. But in Galatians 1, he's saying, if anybody changes the gospel... If if anybody proclaims a gospel different than what Paul has proclaimed to the Galatians, he says, let him be accursed. And yet here, Paul is making that same statement about anybody who doesn't have a love and an affection for Jesus. Now, how can Paul make such a strong statement like that? Because those are strong words. How can he be so sure that, hey, if anybody does not have a love for Jesus, let him be accursed? Well, Paul can make such a strong statement because what does he know? He knows that anybody who is truly following Christ, who has truly placed their faith in Jesus, will have a love and affection for him as well. 
And so if you are examining your own faith or someone else's faith, and if as you're, you're looking and as you're examining, if a love for Christ is missing, that means something. It's not something just to speed right past and say, well, uh, maybe that'll come later. No, that, that, is, that is significant. Now, I understand that there are going to be periods and times in our Christian life that are going to be dark, that are going to be difficult. And there are going to be times when our, uh, our, our love for Christ is greater and when it's lesser. But if we don't see a, a love and an affection and a, over a long period of time, there is no love and affection for Christ. That is, that is significant. And if we see that in ourselves... If we see such a a lack of affection and a love for Christ, what should we do? I think we need immediately need to begin by stopping and, and praying and confessing to Christ. And usually, if if we don't have a love for Christ, it's going to be that we have a love for something else. Uh, not having a love for Jesus doesn't mean that we're not loving anything else. It means that we're loving something else more than we love our Savior, more than we love Him. So we should immediately stop and and pray and confess and ask for forgiveness, acknowledging our our wandering heart and then expressing a desire to return to the Lord. And again, when we are evaluating someone else's faith, and and it's really important, again, all all those occasions that I mentioned earlier, in this sermon, that when we will need to evaluate someone else's faith, if we don't see that love, that affection for Christ, again, that is a significant reason for concern. And those are the first two marks of discipleship that we see here. A simple, childlike reception of the message about Jesus. We receive that message in faith. And then the second mark... That if we are truly a disciple, we will have a desire to remain with Jesus. And those first two marks result in a growing faith. Right? If, if we have received the message about Jesus and then we have a desire to remain with him, we will be growing in our walk. We will be progressing as a disciple. And those first two marks then result in the third and final mark that we see here in the last two verses that we'll look at this morning in verses 41 and 42. This third mark that we'll see is that a disciple embraces the word of Jesus as truth. A disciple embraces the word of Jesus as truth. Look at me at those verses. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And as we're reading it, uh, verses 39 and 41 are very similar. Anybody else notice that? Because verse 39 uh, says, hey, that that many uh, of the town believe because of the testimony uh, of the woman's testimony. And then verse 41, and many more believe because of his word. There's a major difference there. Both verses talk about many of the Samaritans coming to faith. But what's the basis of their faith? In verse 39, the basis of their faith is the testimony of the woman. But verse 41, what's the basis of their faith? 
It's the word of Jesus. It's the testimony of Jesus, what he has said about himself. And so the Samaritans, they go and they speak to the woman in verse 42. And they speak to her, and what they're going to say is, again, powerful and informative. Because they acknowledge that initially their faith was based upon what? Only what she had said. But to say it's no longer based only on what she said, but now what's been added to that and really surpassed what she said is the word and the testimony of Jesus himself. It's no longer because of only what she said, but their faith now has a stronger foundation. It says they have heard for themselves what Jesus has taught, who he is. And now what do they know? They know, they have become convinced that Jesus is the Savior of the world. They have come to know Him personally and intimately. And they now make a profession of faith in who He is and what He will do. And notice, they don't say, hey, we've come to this conclusion that Jesus is going to be the Savior of Israel. Or that He's going to be the Savior of Samaria. No, they say that Jesus, this man, is the one who will be the Savior of the world. That this spiritual harvest that we looked at last week is not going to be limited to a nation or a people group. It's going to extend to every uh, nation, tribe, and tongue that what God is doing through Christ is intended to go forth to all people. And furthermore, what is amazing and what is intended to be a slap in the face to the Jewish leadership of the first century is the fact that who is it that's making this profession, this declaration of who Jesus is? It's Samaritans. Again, who the, the, the group that the Jews look down on the most are the ones who have now become convinced that Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior. One Bible scholar said it this way, And so what was hidden from the wise and understanding Nicodemus is revealed to these spiritual babes. And while scribes and Pharisees stand aside, the pagan world flocks into the kingdom of God. There's a a rich irony here. And and the irony is added to, when you think about it this way, if, if we were people who lived in the first century and we saw that title that the Samaritans gave to Jesus here, that he is the savior of the world, we would say, oh, that's significant. And the reason that is significant is because that is a title that was commonly given to the Roman emperor. And the Roman emperor is the one who is the overlord, the sovereign over both Israel and Samaria at this point in time. They are the ones who are in control of the entire Mediterranean. And this title normally given to the Roman emperor, the savior of the world, the Samaritans are saying, no, it's not the Roman emperor. It's not that guy. It's this Jewish man. It's Jesus. It's not somebody in Rome. It's somebody here, right now in this little town of Sychar. This is a profound profession of faith, a very significant title that the Samaritans give to Jesus as the Savior of the world. Additionally, in the Old Testament, the Messiah was never referred to as the Savior. The only one 
that whom the Old Testament refers to as Savior is God himself. So when the Samaritans say that this is the Savior of the world, they're not just saying this is the Messiah. They're saying this is God in the flesh. This is the Son of God who will be the Savior of the world. And while we can, we can focus upon this title, this proclamation, this profession of faith, we, we must not lose sight of the progression of faith that we see demonstrated in the Samaritans just in a few verses. That is what our attention should be drawn to. See, their faith is no longer a second-hand faith. It's passed on from the woman. It's grown. It's shifted to a different foundation. They now have a personal faith built upon the foundation of a personal experience with Jesus in the two days that he has spent with them. Leon Morris puts it this way, that faith is not faith that rests on the testimony of another. There must be personal knowledge of Christ if there is to be an authentic Christian experience. And as I said, most of us came to faith initially because of the testimony of somebody else. But these verses show us what eventually has to happen. If that's how we came to believe in Christ, because of the testimony of someone else, what eventually has to happen is that the, the sureness of our faith, the sureness of our understanding has to change and transition from that individual's testimony to the word and the testimony of Jesus himself. We eventually need to be more convinced by what God's word says, what Jesus declares about himself than merely someone else, someone else's testimony about Jesus. Our faith must become personal. It cannot continue as second-hand faith. Indeed, second-hand faith isn't saving faith. But second-hand faith should become saving faith. Again, I mentioned earlier that, that every church kid will struggle to make this transition. Or any, any church kid who has made a profession at an early age and then continues to grow up in the church, they'll struggle with this. They'll wrestle with this. Of Again, that transition from making a profession based upon what their parents have shared with them, what their parents have taught them, to do I really believe this myself? Every church kid has to answer that question of am I convinced because of what my parents say or am I convinced because of what Jesus says in his word? Ultimately, all of us have to, to make that transition. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where our theology will meet our counseling. And what do we do if someone we know is struggling with this transition from secondhand faith to personal faith? What do we do? I'll say this. First and foremost, pray and be patient. Remember John 3. What, what do we see in John chapter 3? Who is it that saves? It's God. The, the new birth from above doesn't, isn't a ma- manufactured thing that we do in our own heart. It's something that happens to us. God is the one that gives us a new heart, who, who gives us the new birth. So we pray for the Lord to work. Secondly, we continue to speak about the gospel with that person. And we speak about the gospel, and we proclaim all that the, the gospel offers, but we also don't hold back all that the gospel demands. The gospel calls us to, 
place our faith and our trust in Jesus. The gospel says that all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that our salvation, our forgiveness, our reconciliation with God is found by looking to Jesus in faith. We proclaim that salvation is free, but then following Jesus, being one of his disciples, is going to cost us everything. That's what we must clearly and precisely articulate to those who are struggling who are wrestling with transitioning from a second-hand faith to a personal faith. Additionally, if somebody is wrestling with that, allow them to express their doubts. Allow them to do that. And then answer any and all of their questions. Take the time to sit down and to talk with them, to pray with them. Answer their questions and then also graciously remind them that a decision is needed. And remind them that that not making a decision is a decision. Because we're we're not in a neutral category. We're not like, well, I can just put it off and I'm I'm still not on either rejecting Christ or believing in him. No, our default position as human beings is unbelief. Our default position is rejection of Christ. So not making a decision to believe in him still leaves us in that category of rejecting him and graciously remind them that a decision is needed pray and be patient continue to speak the gospel allow them to express their doubts answer their questions but continue to call them to make a decision to continue to call them to believe in Christ again what about if we are struggling with that transition can I I had said that, hey, we we need to immediately confess if we don't have that desire, that love and affection for Jesus. But if if we're struggling to really know if our faith is genuine, I would say that we need to begin by by pursuing Jesus in the study of his word. Seeking him through the scriptures. And then honestly, ask your questions of somebody else. Express your doubts. But also be wise in who you go and ask those questions of. Have you guys ever realized that usually you know what somebody is going to say? When you go and ask them for advice, you probably already know what they're going to say, generally speaking. And you choose who you're going to go and get advice from because you know what they're going to say. Sometimes you're like, well, I'm not going to go ask my my mom because I know exactly what she's going to say. I'm going to go ask my friend. Uh, And I would say, especially when it comes to questions about the Bible and the doubts that you have about Christianity and the faith, don't just go and ask your unbelieving teacher or your unbelieving friends. Come speak with one of your pastors. Come speak with uh, one of the, the leaders in the church. Come speak with your parents. But then also I I would say this, if if you are struggling with making that transition from a second-hand faith to a personal faith, I would also say this, I would also encourage you to examine your heart, because oftentimes we can struggle with making that transition because there is a sin in our life that we are clinging to. And we know that if we are really going to follow Jesus, what are we going to have to give up? I'm going to have to give up my, my pet sin, my, my go-to sin that I find so much satisfaction from, but is really enslaving me. You know that if you really are going to follow Christ, you're going to have to give that up. And oftentimes, 
and, and speaking with students and certain things, uh, as, I, as I ask questions and, and narrow things down, that's really what it, what it turns out to be. There's a pet sin that they don't want to give up. And that's why they're wrestling with, really, do I want to bow the knee in faith to Christ? So I'd encourage you to do all of those things. And these are the, the three distinguishing marks of a disciple that we see here in this passage. That a, a disciple will receive the message in faith. That they will have a desire to remain with Jesus. And then a disciple will embrace the word of Jesus as true. That second-hand faith will turn into personal faith. And again, I would, I would then close with this, this illustration of why is this so important? Why, is this, why does this transition have to happen? Well, earlier this summer, uh, there was a well-known Christian author who had renounced his faith. You may have heard of it. Uh, a man named Joshua Harris. He was well-known in Christian circles for his 1997 book, uh, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, which uh, he proposed a different paradigm for Christian relationships. And he wrote that book when he was 20 years old. He became a bestseller. Ten years later, at the age of 30, he became uh, senior pastor of Covenant Life Church in Gaithersburg, Maryland, which is a, a mega church, and it's the mothership of the Sovereign Grace uh, Ministry Network. So he, he became the, the senior pastor of all of that, at the age of 30. And in 2015, that church was rocked by a sexual abuse scandal. I mean, just rocked. It came out that there had been a massive cover-up of sexual abuse of children within their ministry. And all of that had taken place before Joshua Harris had become the pastor. But because all of that was was coming to light and there was just this massive cover-up, he felt that he needed to step back, that he needed to resign because his own reputation was tarnished. Because, again, the question is, did you know about this? So in 2015, he had stepped down and he, he resigned his position and moved to Vancouver, British Columbia to attend Regent college his graduate school of theology he did that because he had as has been this young person who had been uh promoted very quickly into a, a high position in ministry but he'd never gone to seminary so i kind of did that backwards so he said let, let me go back and, and start seminary well in, in 2018 three years later a foreshadowing of things to come he he renounced everything that he had written in his best-selling book I don't believe any of that anymore. And then this past summer, in July, he announced that he and his wife were divorcing. And then two weeks after that, he announced that he was in essence divorcing the Christian faith. He was renouncing everything that he had believed. He made all of these announcements on Instagram. And in one of his posts, he said, By all the measures that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. And the announcement was shocking and heartbreaking and confusing for many, as you can imagine. Because what do you do if one of your pastors who shepherded you and taught you and guided you, what do you do if one of the pastors, one of the men who has had such a significant impact on your life, what do you do when they abandon the faith? It can rock your world, right? But, but along those same lines... What, what do teens do when, when parents begin to doubt? When, when parents have questions or when parents live uh, in rebellion against God? Teens begin to have those same questions, those same doubts. 
Well, what, what does this person's abandonment of the faith mean for me when they were the one who shepherded me and taught me? And that's why this transition that we see in this passage is so important. Why we cannot build our faith on the testimony of somebody else. And that is why the Christian faith ultimately is not built on the testimony of any single person. It's built upon the testimony of Christ in Scripture. And if you place your faith and your trust, and if you believe because somebody else believes, your faith is then dependent upon their faith. And if they, if they begin to doubt, if they begin to have questions, and if they abandon the faith, it's going to rock your world. People always ask that. What do we do when, when a pastor of this stature renounces his faith in Christ? Well, I would say, well, Christ is still on the throne. And, and our faith is, is not built upon Joshua Harris's profession. It's built upon the words of Jesus. And that is where we must build our faith upon that, first and foremost. Don't build your faith upon anything else, even as we read in, in Matthew's Gospel, right? As Jesus is closing out the Sermon on the Mount. Christ is the solid rock. If we build on anything else, what is it? Sinking sand. We have to work on this transition of being convinced in our own hearts, in our own minds. Not because of what someone else has said, not because of what someone else has believed, but because... We genuinely believe. And, and may the Samaritan's confession be our confession, that we have heard and we now know that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come to you to praise you for your perfect knowledge to praise you for your perfect plan of salvation how you have ordained a spiritual harvest of souls not just of one people group but of all nations and we thank you that the gospel goes forth in that way and we thank you for how you have orchestrated for us as individuals to hear and receive the gospel in faith. And Lord, if there are some here this morning who have not done that, Lord, I pray that you would work in their heart. Lord, that you would grant them repentance and faith, that they would turn and trust in Jesus. And Lord, for, for us who have already trusted Lord, may we be convicted by just the frequency of our lack of affection for Jesus. Lord, we long to remain with you. May you grow our love for you. And Lord, we ask that you would help each of us make that transition. Moving from believing in Christ, believing that the message about Christ, to being absolutely convinced by your word, by his own testimony concerning who he is. 
Lord, may you firmly establish in our hearts the truthfulness of your word, the goodness and greatness of your son. And may we worship you. May we worship him in spirit and in truth, even as we sing to him now. In his name, amen.